and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you'll love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been overwhelmed by the response to the book so far. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching, and we actually have participants going through the accelerator program that found out about it via this podcast. So the accelerator is designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Our next accelerator launches in July, and it is filling up now. If you're interested in learning more, feel free to email me, brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. And let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Josh Linkner is our guest on the podcast today. And he is somebody who has lots of range. He wears a lot of different hats. And he's not afraid to step into these different parts of himself. He calls himself a creative troublemaker. He passionately believes that all human beings have incredible creative capacity, and he's on a mission to unlock inventive thinking and creative problem solving to help leaders, individuals, and communities soar. At his core, I think Josh really cares deeply about helping, impacting, influencing people in a positive way, and he does so through speaking and writing. He's written four books. He's a keynote speaker. He's been the founder and CEO of 
five tech companies, which have sold for a combined value of over $200 million. As I said, he's a writer. He's the author of four books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Discipline Dreaming and The Road to Reinvention. He has invested in and or mentored over 100 startups and is the founding partner of Detroit Venture Partners. Speaking of Detroit, it's very clear in this conversation that Josh is passionate about his hometown and that it's influenced him in a variety of ways, including how much he's obsessed with and interested and loves jazz. Today, Josh serves as chairman and co-founder of Platypus Labs, an innovation research training and consulting firm. He's twice been named Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and is the recipient of the United States Presidential Champion of Change Award. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Josh Linkner. Josh, really excited to have you on the podcast Shout out to our, our friend, I can call him a friend now, Sunil Gupta, for introducing us. And uh, Sunil really made me think a lot about what it takes to be backable, which is the title of his book, a heck of a title. Um, and I think about you and I think about your background and you, you've been in business and you've, you've probably had to be backed at times. So I'm sure we'll get into a lot of those types of conversations as well. But what I'm most interested to learn about to start is your upbringing. I know that music uh, played a big part in your life. It sounds like then and, and now. So I'd love to know how music played a role in your life as a kid and paint the picture for what life was like in your house growing up. Well, Brian, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I, I'm very grateful to have some time with you. Um, so I grew up in the city of Detroit. I was born in the city, not the suburbs, as were my parents and grandparents. And, uh, I, I, you know, there are many people that had it worse than me. I'm not trying to, you know, play the victim here, but, but, you know, we didn't have a super posh upbringing. Uh, and, and actually my parents got divorced very early. I was only two and a half and uh, my friends kind of joked around in my, my family that I had to become an adult at age four. And I got a little bit lost in the shuffle. And, and as a result though, I, there, well, that's, there's some negatives to that. I, I sort of had to learn, you know, self-efficacy and, and, and independence very early on. And uh, while neither of my parents were musicians, they were always curious and, and creative and such. And uh, I got into playing music very early. Uh, I, I started tinkering way before this, but formally started music lessons at age eight. And so, you know, that's four, almost 43 years ago for me. And I just fell in love. And not only with music, but specifically jazz, which is this sort of dangerous art form. I, I, not, every, I know not everyone loves listening to jazz, but it's cool because it's just raw and it's, it's fresh and, and 99% of what you play, you improvise as you go. It's, 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 an, it's a live innovation art form. And so I learned so much from trying to work. Uh, I put myself through college as a working jazz musician. I, I, in Detroit, I would sneak into jazz clubs as a teenager. And half the time they'd let me sit in, other, half the time they'd throw me out. I played in the Wayne State Jazz Band, which is an urban uh, college here in Detroit. Uh, when I was in high school, I got permission to go leave early every day and play in the college jazz band. All so right, music was a huge part of my Josh. life. Josh, all right, white for those that are listening to this, Josh is what white guy, um, jazz, you're talking about going into urban areas of Detroit. What was that like for you? What did you learn from that? What was that experience like seeing different cultures and different and you know, jazz clubs in Detroit? I have a certain image in my head of what that looks like, and it's not you. So tell me, <laughs> tell me, tell, tell me a bit about what those experiences were like for you, especially when you were younger. Yeah, that's a good observation. So for those that are not, you know, have never met me, I'm like a, you know, I, I'm a short Jewish guy. Like, I, you know, I'm five, five on a good day. So you're right. It was a bit awkward. And, and I, but, you know, I grew up in a pretty diverse environment and, and I, 
and I'm not just saying this because it's the times, but I, I really, you know, always had tons of friends and of different, you know, ethnicities and backgrounds and and and, and uh, sexual orientation, and everything. So I, I just kind of always thrived on diversity. Um, I didn't get a lot of prejudice per se. I got some funny looks, but you know, if you can play okay, you, you're able to overcome those those barriers. I mean, I do have some funny stories if we have a chance of of when uh, one time I played in a Motown band. I, I was working in college, and it was this all African American band. Everyone was like 40 some years older than me and then me. And so I'm like this scrawny Jewish kid who's like 120 pounds. And uh, the funny thing is like, they would make me do all the spoken word stuff. So in, in other words, rap, if there was rap stuff, I had to do it. And we would like, we, we toured around the, the South in, in this rusted out old van. And it like, it's like, what, which one of these things doesn't look like it fits in the rest of this? Yeah, but we, we had a blast. And, and so I, you know, I really relish those, those experiences. And you mentioned parents getting divorced at two and a half. So you're, you're young at that age. Um, how did that relationship impact you? Uh, and what was that like for you as a kid with them being divorced? Well, you know, I think it was pretty awful. I mean, and, and probably anyone that's gone through divorce in, in any capacity, there, there's a lot of hardship there. Um, and and you know, I'm, again, I'm not, not blaming anybody. I think they made the right decision. Actually, my parents, I, I've lost them both. Um, so, so they're no longer living. And But I ended up having a nice relationship with both of them. And what really happened, though, is they became uh, just very focused on themselves, kind of. Like my mom went to law school. She put herself through law school as a single mom. My dad uh, went on with his life. And I, I did kind of get lost in the shuffle. And uh, well, I think there was a lot of moments as an only child at the time. And, and well, it was, it was difficult. I do think on the upshot is I, I learned a lot of the ability to be uh, reflective, the ability to be independent. And, and I always felt at an early age, like if I wanted anything, I had to go out there and figure it out myself. Did you have siblings? You mentioned an only child at the time. Did you have siblings as, as you got older? My dad remarried and he has, he had two kids who I'm, I don't call him my half brother or sister now, but so my sister, Sarah is 10 years younger than I am. And my brother, Ethan is 13 years younger than I am. So I was really more of like an uncle than, than a, you know, close knit brother. And I'm of course love them to death, but um, I kind of grew up mostly feeling like an only child. And you mentioned music being in your veins from the time you're eight. And it sounds like it really impacted you. Let's talk about business. Um, you, you don't, it doesn't sound like parents, uh, you mentioned mom going to law school. It doesn't sound like parents were necessarily that interested in business. When did business become something that that you were interested in? Well, I, I started my first company at age 11 selling illegal fireworks. And so I basically, the hoodlum who lived around the corner from me, he was like 17 year old high school dropout, you know, in his basement had like some stash of illegal fireworks. And I cut a deal with him and I'd load up my school backpack with fireworks and sell them to my, my friends at school. Um, and by the way, like this was a pretty good business. I, I had a good supply chain. I had healthy gross profit margins. I, I worked out the sales and distribution. The only problem is I ran into a regulatory issue. Uh, really, you might say it's a treasury issue too, because I was storing my profits, crumpled up $20 bills in my underwear drawer. And my mom at one point went to like put some clothes in there and like, where did you get all this money? So, so the jig was up and, and the, actually the, the penalty was sort of awful. Uh, my, my dad made me call every single one of my friend's parents and say, hello, Mrs. Jones, this is Josh Lankner calling. I sold illegal fireworks to your son. And so I like had no friends for three years after this because everyone hated me because I got them in trouble. But uh, that was technically my first uh, entrepreneurial effort. And as I'm hearing you talk, look, you have passion, you have energy. There's, there's obviously creativity and innovation. Are you more like mom? Are you more like dad? Or was there someone else in your life that influenced you and nurtured you in a way that really has helped shape who you are? 
I'm probably mo- more like my grandmother, whom, whom I just adored. And because I was, as mentioned, sort of lost in the shuffle, I spent a lot of time with her. You know, she passed in 1986, so it was you know a long time ago. But I think about her every day. And in fact, the, the, in part of the dedication of, of my new book, uh, Big Little Breakthroughs, which I know we'll talk about, um, actually dedicated it to my two uh, grandparents, two grandmothers, I should say. But um, her name was Ronnie. And so it was the dedication is to my two grandmothers whom I miss dearly, Mickey for teaching me the love of language and Ronnie, who I was referring to, for teaching me that anything's possible. Mm-hmm. And that's really what Ronnie was all about. She was this warm, kind, compassionate, loving person. And she was a sort of stable in a life that was rather rather unstable for me. And she just always believed in me. She's like, you know, you, you can do whatever you want. And, and that was such a, I, I sort of internalized that at an early age. I just got chills as you said that because my grandma, Yai, who's no longer with us, I talk about all the time because she was the one that I can hear on the sidelines when I'm playing soccer. Go, Brian, go, Brian. And I could have had the worst game ever, but I came off and I was the greatest in Grandma Yai's eyes. And I think all of us, if we look for it, can find that person in our life if we're open to it. That person just that supports us and believes in us unconditionally. And unfortunately, sometimes it's not your parents and sometimes it's not your grandparents, but I always say like, who can you have in your back pocket? I call it my, my grandma. Yai. Like when I think about struggles, it's like, I probably need a cheerleader at times. I think we all need to have a cheerleader. So it's kind of, I think it hit me because your, your grandma Ronnie probably similar to my grandma. Yai, just had this belief um, in me. So, so that, that resonates with me. So you're a kid. You know, ironically, though, real quickly. So that it, you know, you also learn from sometimes from from parents that what what kind of not to do. And so my dad was sort of a difficult guy. Again, I, I certainly was at peace with him, and I miss him dearly. But he was he was smart, but he was he was kind of like abrasive. And and just real quickly because this is sort of an impactful moment. So I, at age twenty, I had this idea to start a company. And I had no business doing this. I'd never taken a business class. I'm a jazz musician, but I thought I was kind of a tech nerd also. And I realized that I could buy computer components from a mail order catalog, assemble them in my college apartment and sell them for a profit. So anyway, I had this idea. I called up my dad. I'm like, hey, can can you loan me a thousand dollars to start this company? And he's like, well, show me your business plan. I didn't even know what a business plan was, but I went to the library, figured it out typed up like the, the granddaddy of all business plans. It was like, you know, hundred pages, charts and graphs. And I printed it out at Kinko's and mailed it to him because there was no email then. And, and, and I was waiting for praise and admiration. And I get on the phone with him and here's what he says. What the hell do you know about running a business? You're going to fail. This is, you're, you know, who, why would anyone back you? This is stupid. You know, so it was one of those harsh moments. And, and in retrospect, he was probably doing it to be protective. I, I don't want to assume that, but, but man, that, that stung. Like, you know, here's, here's your own dad, like just not believing in you. But it actually gave me this sense of like, I'm going to do it anyway. And, and one of the principles I talk about in the book is fall seven times stand eight, which is around creative resilience. So I just like, I'm going to prove him wrong. So I saved up some money playing jazz gigs and started this business and, and never looked back. And actually by, by overcoming that, that, that hardship, that, that, that challenge, it really gave me a reservoir of confidence going forward as, as additional challenges emerged throughout my business career. All right. So we're both five. I, I say I'm five, six. So I think I got an inch on you. Uh, you know, five, 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 six Jewish guys, but our upbringing is very different. My parents still married, still alive, very healthy relationship, uh, believed in me, inspired me. And so for me, it's much more go toward that. Um, but that is something I hear from so many of my clients. Like, yeah, I just go the other way. Um, is there a downside to, um, you know, when you 
when you got that rejection saying, all right, I'll show you um, and almost going the other way. Is there any dark side or downside that can come with that as well? I'm sure there is. I mean, you know, I can only speak to my own experiences, but, but, you know, when we, when we are motivated by revenge or negativity, you know, that might give you a boost if you're trying to score the winning touchdown or something. But, you know, the question is, is that sustainable? And for me, I had a sense of intrinsic motivation and drive far beyond getting back at my dad for that particular issue. So I think like in the moment that was, but if I, if I perseverated on that, you know, now 30 some years later, if I'm like, ah, I'm going to stick it to the man, like that would probably be super unhealthy. And I don't, and I, mean, I don't harbor any resentment or anything like that at the time it was motivating, but I don't think that we should as collectively as human beings necessarily be motivated by, by that type of drive, because you're right, there is a dark side to it. Hopefully we're motivated uh, by the desire to achieve our full potential, to make a big impact on, on others, to be of service. And, and those to me are the more positive ways to, to drive sustainable motivation. Is that what motivates you now is to be in service, to make an impact, or is there something else underneath it for you? You know, I, I've reflected on this a lot. I, I turned 50 a, a little less than a year ago. And uh, you know, this is a point in our lives where we where we reflect, and you know, thankfully, I've had some financial success. So, I, well, I'm certainly, you know, I, I like winning. You know, that's not the main driver at this point. But for me, yeah, it is. I, I, I think about my. I spent a lot of time thinking about this, and the best analogy I like is that of a Sherpa. So, for those that don't know, if you're climbing Mount Everest, you hire a local climbing professional called a Sherpa who leads you up the mountain. And I love that because they're, they're leading up others up the mountain and helping them achieve greatly, yet they get to summit the mountain also and enjoy the beautiful view together. And, and to me, I try to be like a Sherpa. I, I feel like by helping other people win, I get to enjoy that as well. And knowing that you're making a difference, I'm not trying to sound like some cheesy rehearsed postcard. I, I believe it from my soul. But, but if I actually were to double click down on that a little bit, this is honestly what's really driving me. I look at the world is that there are 7 billion people with dormant creative capacity. You know, starting as a jazz musician and then being, you know, an entrepreneur and an investor, I'm just, I'm passionate about human creativity. And the research is so clear that all of us have this reservoir of creativity, but many of us don't deploy it. And I just think about that. If, what if I could help everyday people become everyday innovators? What if I could help people bring that creativity to the surface to, to drive outcomes in their lives that they care about, whether it's a career or business outcome, maybe it's a health or family outcome, maybe it's a community or environment outcome, but just think about this. What if, what if you live in the DC area? What if the entire DC area became 5% more creative? What would that look like? I mean, think about what a disproportionate uh, advantage that would create for kids in school and for healthcare professionals and for the environment and traffic and public safety and on and on. So I feel like I'm on this mission. I get, I, I know it sounds like cheesy, but I, I really mean it deep down that if I can help everyday people become everyday innovators, the world's just a better place. And that, that's kind of what fires me up these days. How do we do it? How do we unlock creativity in people? Well, so the, the bad news is that many adults don't feel creative. And to me, when I hear someone say, oh, I'm not a creative or yeah, the creatives in our company sit on the second floor, like my heart breaks a little bit because truthfully, we're all creative. And the research again is so clear that as human beings, we're hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. But so many of us have suppressed those, those natural skills and abilities. <clears throat> I like to say creativity is like your weight, that more like your weight than your height. I mean, as mentioned, I'm short. So as try, try as I may, I'm not gonna grow a foot by next month. But, but I can change my weight based on my exercise and diet and habits and all that. And creativity is exactly the same. So the bad news is that many of us aren't fully deploying our creativity. The good news though, is we can reconnect to it very quickly. It's not like learning a new language where you have to start from scratch. It's more about relearning how to ride the bike. And so uh, through a series of techniques and mindsets that I share in the book, I just provide a really pragmatic approach to harness and build those creative abilities and helping people not only deploy them, but giving them the courage to do so. 
can you give us like one of your favorite mindsets or techniques to unlock creativity? And this is actually really relevant. I had a call yesterday with a founder of a startup company and he said, me and my co-founder are supply chain guys. We are operations guys. We're not marketing creatives. He, literally what he said to me. And so he either has to find somebody that is going to do that, or he needs to unlock it from within. So what's a mindset or a strategy or a tool that he could use in order to unlock his creativity? Well, so first let's just quickly dispel some myths. So one myth I hear all the time, oh, I'm not creative because we measure our creativity based on if we can paint or do music or, or dance. And the truth is that we can all be creative in our own ways. Your, your role or training has nothing to do with it. You, if, you, if you're in finance, you should be creative. I'm not saying you should break the law, but you should, you should read the data and, and understand insights and, and make, make recommendations using your creativity. If you're in the, in, in trying a case to a jury, you should be creative. If you're in sales, you absolutely should be creative. So I really think there's a role for creativity for, for all of us. The second that we hear all the time is that innovation only counts if it's a billion dollar idea or if it changes the world. And my whole book, Big Little Breakthroughs, is about cultivating small micro innovations, daily, daily little small acts of creativity that are way less risky but they add up to great stuff and you're building the skill at the same time. So, so once we really recognize that we all have the capacity to be creative in our own ways, then for your, your friends on the call, what do we do about it? Well, I think we should probably separate it between mindsets and tactics real quickly. So let's just start with mindsets and then we can drill into some tactics. So in the book, I spent an, over a thousand hours researching and interviewing people all over the globe, CEOs, billionaires, celebrity entrepreneurs, Grammy award-winning artists. But I also interviewed everyday people that were just doing really cool stuff with their creativity. And what I found is that there are some common mindsets across this wide range of people in different industries and geographies. And so the back half of the book is the eight core obsessions or mindsets of, of everyday innovators. And they have kind of playful names. One of them is start before you're ready. One of them is use every drop of toothpaste. One of them is break it to fix it. One of them is open a test kitchen. And so these are little strategies that are actually pretty quick and easy to embrace. You don't have to study them for 10 years or, or get a master's degree in creativity. They're, they kind of make sense and, and they're supported with storytelling and, and techniques as well. It's really cool. I think about myself and I've, I actually didn't do this intentionally, but I just hit the 10 year mark of my work in this industry. And I looked back because I'm doing a presentation at a university for people in my, my field. And I was looking back and I was like, all right, how did I get to where I'm at right now? And a lot of it had to do with just creating. And so what do I mean by that? I created a program for athletes. I created a podcast. I created an assessment tool. I created a newsletter. I created a book. Like I constantly, every year, if I look back, I actually took on a new project and created. And, and this year I started with, you know, those whiteboard animations that people make for marketing. Sure. You can actually buy software and create it for really cheap. I started doing that and just creating my own whiteboards. And I did two or three of them and I had fun with it. I don't know if I'm going to continue to do it, um, but I'm also creating a course right now. And so for me, I've, I've gone toward that idea. And through that process, I figure out what I enjoy doing and what has some legs and what maybe I let go of. And the other thing I've realized is that forcing functions for me really helped me create. And, you know, having written books, if you set a goal that says this chapter has to be done by this date, 
it helps because it's never going to be perfect. And you're always going to want to change the content. Same thing with me for my newsletter. I put it out every week. I used to put it out every day. It forces me to do it. The podcast for me, I found that if I create parameters and goalposts, then I, I go play and create, and I really love the playing and creating. So um, it's just interesting for me to think about. Is there anything in there that I said that you have some thoughts on? Yeah, a couple of things. So one of the things you're talking about is counterintuitive, which is that constraints drive creativity. And you are 100% right. You know, when I was studying music in college, I had a professor that would force me to remove strings from my guitar. So I had to take off one, two, sometimes three strings from the instrument. So you'd figure, okay, if your resources are now cut in half, your creativity is going to tank. But this surprising and counterintuitive thing happened when, when those strings were off and I could no longer rely on the patterns that I knew, it actually expanded my creative output rather than restricted it. So it doesn't surprise me that a deadline or those goalposts are driving your creativity. The other thing that you said I thought was really, really important to, to highlight is that you, know, you are doing wildly creative work in my opinion, yet you're not writing code, you're not creating marketing stuff. And so again, we, we, we in our minds have this, this, this very narrow definition of what is creativity, what is innovation. And to me, this, the whole book is about like, you don't have to wear a lab coat or a hoodie to be creative. Every one of us can be creative, again, in our own ways. Like I play jazz guitar pretty well. I can't draw a stick figure if I tried. And you don't want to see me anywhere near a dance floor. It's so interesting. I actually have talked about it on the podcast that I'm I'm very much adapt to being on the dance floor and can handle that um, very well. Um, surprisingly, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> but um, we hear stories when we're younger about what it means to be creative. And to your point, art class, I would be awful in handwriting, awful, even writing. So we think as a kid that great writing involves great grammar. And so if we're bad at grammar, we say, well, I'm not a good writer. And it's so inaccurate. And the reality is like, if you have good ideas and you can write, then you can go hire someone who can edit your work and take care of a lot of those grammatical issues. But I think as a kid, at least for me, I definitely would never have described myself as a creative by what my schools were saying. And yet as an adult, I absolutely would say, yeah, I'm a creative. And by the way, also from like a marketing mind, I have creativity there. When I sit in a room with other people, I think differently than a lot of what the room thinks. And it's just like a beauty of my brain that honestly, like it was not acknowledged as a kid. I was not deemed talented at pretty much anything. I was like mediocre at pretty much everything. If I, being honest, when I was in high school, I don't think anyone at my school would say, Brian's going to be X or Brian's going to be Y. They're like, he was a nice guy. He's a good guy. Like that was sort of it. But none of my genius was being pulled out uh, at, when I was younger. And I know you're a dad of four kids. So as a father, I'm curious about this with my two kids who are very different, even though they're very close in age. And I know you have twins. So I'm, I'm curious to see how you've watched them nurture and develop and as a father. And, and, and so really from a father perspective, I'd be curious, how can I nurture my children and their creativity and not squash it um, in a negative way? You're bringing up a, a super uh, topic that I'm passionate about because 
you know, it's, it's really a shame. I mean, it's been said that kids, you know, you never met a four-year-old that or five-year-old that isn't creative, wouldn't self-identify as creative, but many times adults, you, you actually bounce back, but many times people take those things that, you know, your, your third grade art teacher told you that you're no good. And, and you, you keep that for 40 years. And it's often been said that kids sort of enter kindergarten with a full set of colorful crayons, and then they graduate high school with a single blue ballpoint pen. And that, that's really a, a tragedy. And so I think it is, it's part of parents' responsibility to nurture and develop creative problem solving and inventive thinking. Again, doesn't mean they have to paint on canvas, but, but let's have people thinking creatively. And I'll tell you what, it's not only because it's the right thing to do, I think it's really important to set them up for success. You know, the hard skills of the past, the way that workforce used to be, many of those skills have been automated, outsourced, or commoditized. And so what's going to allow kids to win in their careers and their lives going forward, it's what used to be thought of as soft, but it, it's creative problem solving. It's inventive thinking. It's using their imagination. Imagination. It's being able to navigate change. It's being able to make decisions in the face of ambiguity. And I really think it's important for us as parents, to, dads, to, to do that. When my older daughter, Chloe, was in art class at one point, and the teacher said, hey, go, go draw a bear. So she comes back with like this cool, funky, purple-shaped purple bear, and she hands it to the teacher. And the teacher's like, yeah, Chloe, that's not what bears look like. Go back and redo it. And so those moments happen thousands of times, and I'm not blaming teachers. Teachers are heroes, but we have an outdated system. So I think as parents, it's our job, it's our responsibility to help nurture the creativity of our kids. One thing I do, I mean, I'm not the greatest parent, certainly, but um, I try to ask my kids a lot of open-ended questions and force them to use their imagination. You know, I'll say, oh, what's another use for this? Or, hey, if you didn't have this, how would you do it? You know, and just sort of give them little challenges that they can understand. My, my older kids who are much older, I might see something, I'm like, hey, if, if you had to create a, a, an ad to market this style, Styrofoam cup, what, 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 what might you say in the ad? And so when you ask questions like, how might you, or what might you do this, or what if that, it really kind of opens up the, the kids that let's not only focus on what is, let's focus on what's possible. So good. And you mentioned soft skills. My company is called Strong Skills. And really the mission of the company is to change how the world thinks about these skills. Because coming from the sports world, if you're soft, you get cut from the team, you get fired, you get traded. Um, and so I think the word soft really demeans what these skills are and what you're saying is that they're essential. So I think it's what makes us strong. Um, and what's interesting about strong skills, and I, I never thought about this until you mentioned it, when I was brand, working with a branding company on the logo and the wording and all that good stuff, we were creating the logo and it just wasn't hitting. Um, and I was downstairs with my daughter and she was drawing and I am the worst artist in the history of earth. And I created the logo with her. Like she was drawing and I just started taking these S's and putting them together. And I was like, wait a second, there's something here. There's a path and there's curves and I could now see it. And I was doodling with her and I brought it to them and they made it way better and did awesome work on, on the logo. And we got our logo, but you said something like five-year-olds are, are creative. And as we get older, we, not we, our society tends to, pull away that creativity. And I love this phrase, like think like a pro and play like a kid. Because as a 50 year old, you have seen some things that your kids haven't seen. And there's amazing experience in, you know, having five companies and selling them and creating, you have a lot of stuff that's professional. And we don't want to lose the creativity of that five-year-old that's open to possibilities, or that is doodling, because in that doodling is where the logo was birthed. And so it's just something that is so interesting because I, if it wasn't for my kids, I wouldn't have ever doodled. I would never have like sat there and given myself space to actually 
get into that kid headspace. You're so right there. And you touched on, I wanted to bring this up because I know your sports background and everything, but I've thought about this often. So when you're a kid, you go out and play. When I go to do music, I play music. When you do sports, you play sports. And let's contrast that now with what we do as professionals, quote unquote, is that we work. And work is like, imagine like you're trading your soul for money as if there's an ounce of enjoyment there, you better stop it right away and get back to work. And, and I think like that's so backwards. And in fact, I think we do our best results, our best output when we are playing at times. And I've often wondered what would happen if we changed the words? Like instead of saying workforce, what if you had a play force? Instead of working through your problems, what if you played through your problems? You know, think about this, bye honey, I'm going out to play for the day instead of going off to work. I mean, and, and I know I'm saying it kind of jokingly, but I think for you, I mean, think about this, normally in a, a typical business, you're like, okay, sit at your cube in a bad fluorescent lighting and, and you got a deadline and you know, all these serious people around, no one smiled for years and come up with a logo. And of course you, you're not coming up with a cool logo, but then when you're playing with your kid and you're, you're having fun and you're in the moment, like all of a sudden your creativity comes forward. So one of the key things I talk about in the book is you have to create the right conditions for creativity to flourish. In the same way a greenhouse creates the right conditions for plants to flourish, I think a core job of leaders is to create an environment where creativity is, is supported. Uh, by the way, the biggest blocker of creativity is not natural talent, it's fear. And so fear and creativity cannot coexist. So if you're one of those bosses or you're, you're in an environment where you're fearful, oh man, I'm up against a deadline. I better get this right or my client's going to fire me. There's no way you're coming up with a cool idea. But when you're playing with your daughter and drawing, doodling with the S's, boom. And kids are more fearless because they haven't been burned. And that's right. So they have that and we see it. Don't jump on the couch. Don't jump off this. Like we then train them to have some fear because it can protect them and keep them safe. So it's not all bad either. But man, so in my book, I talk about work ethic and preparation, focus on work and preparation and focus on play and performance. Um, and so the book is all about how you need to shift your mind in preparation and performance. Um, and one of the things that I found with the idea of play is there are these researchers, Stuart Brown and Lynn Barnett, they found that there's much greater ability to cope with stress uh, or lower perceived stress if we take on a play mindset. We're faster at learning, we have greater productivity, we're better job satisfaction, improved bonding and emotional connection with others. There's just amazing research around this idea of play ethic. The Scandinavians in their school systems build in play and their scores are, are pretty amazing. Um, so I agree. I think there's just so much value in work and play. And for you, there's something that I'm really struck by, and I've never asked this question before, but it's so clear that you are very sharp and very experienced when it comes to business. And there's this other side of you that is very experienced and sharp when it comes to music and specifically jazz. And I've never asked this question, so it might come off weird, but if you had 24 hours in your day, and there was no tomorrow, how would you fill that day? Mm. Wow. Um, I would most certainly play music. I mean, to me, music is this beautiful, expressive concept. And I, I mean, I would definitely spend a chunk of that time playing music. Um, I love learning. And so even though if there was no tomorrow, you might say, well, what's the point in learning? I, I literally enjoy the process of learning. It fires me up and boosts my energy. So I'd probably spend some time reading or learning, even though I know that might sound weird. Um, of course, I would spend time with my kids and, and, and my wife, whom I adore dearly. And um, I think I would probably spend a little time looking into the camera and recording some thoughts uh, if I wasn't going to be there tomorrow and, and other people were so that, that I could leave at least a little bit of insight and legacy to others. 
so you've sold five companies, $200 million worth uh, of business. Like this is, this is legit stuff. And we can talk about failures along the way. I know it's not overnight stuff. Um, you didn't mention business in those, in those 24 hours. So I'm curious for you, like, why do you continue to be involved in the business world? How do you think about your relationship with business? Um, cause when I hear you, I'm like, yeah, this dude, if he had nothing else to do, he'd pick up an instrument and jam. And even in your audio book, there's, there's music you're jamming in that, like, talk to me about business and why you're drawn to it and how you think about it and what your relationship is with business. Well, when I play jazz, I I'm, I'm using an instrument and, and using my imagination and creating stuff in real time. When I do business, I do the same thing. So I don't look at business as, although I, don't, I can navigate my way around a spreadsheet if I have to, but I don't think about it as just, you know, activity to only create money. I, I think about it as I'm, I enjoy the creative process and it's interactive and it's collaborative and you're riffing and you're seeing, you're, I, I'm, by the way, I'm kind of in the business of aha moments too, which is a fun business. I'm not like selling hamburgers that poison children or something. So I feel like the business that I'm in is good for the world. I, I love helping other people succeed. I love the interaction. I love, you know, sharing ideas. I love teaching and learning and growing and, you know, economic value is, is also a good thing. You know, not because not I want to drape myself with gold, but economics create more opportunities for others. You can use them for philanthropy. So I'm kind of in, engaged in the business world, not because I have to, but because I love it. And I really think about that as just another, I'm, I'm using different instruments, but I'm still playing jazz. Mm, really interesting. One of the things about your business experience that struck me and that I was curious about is you've hired nearly 10,000 people. What do you look for when you're hiring? Well, I really focus on cultural fit much more than than hard skills because you know skills can be learned and you know often it can become outdated, frankly. And so I look for cultural fit. And in fact, over the years, I've sort of codified I had this 14 operating principles, which I, I share with everybody. These sort of core things that I believe in that I think are productive. They create a healthy. You talked about high performance, you know, teams and stuff. I, I think they create good performance. And so anyway, I, I try to reverse engineer interview questions against those principles. And by the way, once people are working with me, um, we do reviews, annual reviews based on those principles and, and talk about where, did, where are we plussing up? Where can we add value? Where are we falling short? Um, but one of the things that I try to do is really, you know, I've heard a great line in interviewing uh, that, that uh, a friend of mine who owns a company, a software company said, he's like, you know, a job interview is basically two people lying to each other for an hour. <laughs> you know, one person's like, oh, you know, our competition, we have we have so much competitive advantage over everybody else. And we're so different and we care about our people. And then they ask the, the, the candidate, what's your worst quality? They're like, oh, I work too hard. I mean, like, it's just BS. And so what I like doing is sending back to sports and music. If, if you were going to be on a sports team, you would try out for the team. If you want to be part of the Detroit Symphony, you'd have to audition. So why not have an audition instead of an interview, which is ridiculous. So anytime I'm working, trying, like, looking to bring people on, I give them a project. I'm happy to pay them to do the work. And let's see how they perform. Let's see. Their, I want to see their thinking in action. I want to see how they approach it and ask questions and struggle through it. And, and if they're the wrong fit, I, I, it's the best money I spent paying them to, to do the audition because then I don't have to hire them and it doesn't work out. So I, I think we can really revamp the entire way that we look for people. And, but basically I think it's way better to look for cultural fit than skill set. One of my mentors said, before you partner with someone, you should live together and sort of the same thing in marriage. Like you need to live together. A roommate is different than a boyfriend or girlfriend. And once you become a roommate, let's see how you interact and same thing in business. And I think it's interesting that you say, Hey, why don't we try some things out? Let's see how you work. Let's, let's, observe and notice a trade secret in, in professional sports is that if they're bringing a player in for a workout before the draft, 
they'll have the person from the organization go pick that person up from the airport and they'll be in a, you know, let's call it a suburban or a, a, a Uber. <laughs> People would think it'd be an Uber these days. Um, and that person will be in their front office. So they want to see how they're going to interact with that person who they think is just a driver, but it's actually someone from the front office. And I've heard a lot of teams that really that care about culture and, and a lot of them talk about alignment, finding alignment in their culture. And they'll say, we want to see how they interact off the court or off the field. Um, and that will tell us a lot about who they are as a person. And to your point, a lot of times what gets in the way is who the person is, not necessarily what they can do or, or the talent. And so I, I like the idea also of what you're talking about, which is let's, let's work together. Let's go see. Let's go see how this works. We don't have to get married yet. Here's a project. Let's work on it together. And, and if we both can help each other, then that's probably going to be a pretty good marriage. But I love that story about them. I'm not a spy, but someone that's, you know, we're, we're observing you. It matters how you treat, treat people in this organization. And, and we care about that stuff. And you can learn a lot about somebody by watching them when no one's, when no one's watching them. It's different when the spotlight's on. Um, investing is something that you also like to do and invest in companies. So you talk about hiring and what you look for there. What are you looking for when you're investing in people or ideas or companies? Do you have any thesis or anything that you've noticed over time that, that works or any failures that, that don't work and what you've learned along the way? Yeah. Well, one thing, there, there's this comment, there's a running debate, you know, do you bet on the jockey or the horse, they call it, you know, which is do you bet on the pe person or team, or do you bet on the you know technology or idea or product? And I, funny enough, I did an experiment. I, I invested in two companies almost at the exact same time. The investment was the same, $600,000 in each company. One was an A idea with a C-level team. The other one was an A team with a C-level idea. And it's as if it was clockwork, here's what happens. The C team managed to screw up the A idea. I lost every penny. The A team with the C idea managed to polish up their C idea into an A idea and the company, we became wildly successful. So I, I know it's sort of a cliche, but I mean, it's, it really is a people business, even if it's technology. But yeah, here's what I look for. So the myth is that you should back people that look like Steve Jobs, that are like these wildly charismatic, you know, fill up the room, you know, passionate, all that. I think Steve Jobs is more of an anomaly than, than the norm. When I'm trying to back a passionate tech entrepreneur, it's not that. In fact, that can be a real turnoff. It's, you know, if you got too much sizzle and you're trying to take every drop of sunlight, that's it can be a red flag. I look for the, for me anyway, the, the ones that have performed the best are people who are open-minded, who show humility, who are curious, who have a, a deliberate approach to overcoming adversity and can demonstrate how they've done so. Uh, people who give the credit to others. I mean, it's probably the same thing in sports. You know, you've got that, you know, it's one thing if you're LeBron James, fine, you can be an egomaniac or whatever, and, but that's probably the exception to the rule as opposed to the team player who really is there to be there to serve and, and has the right sort of mentality. And th that's what I found in, in, in startups is when you find somebody who is again, open-minded, coachable, humble, those are the ones that perform far better than the ones who have the, the, the most gregarious speech patterns. Well, at least what I've noticed is that you need both. So you need to have the humility that you don't know anything and that you've got a lot to learn and grow and develop and have the arrogance to have this unshakable belief that you're the right person for the job. And when you have that mix and the arrogance comes from a place of humble preparation, then you've earned the right to have this unshakable belief in, in your ability. It doesn't mean you have this unshakable belief in the idea, like the idea can morph and change and evolve, but 
at least this is what I've studied over the last 10 years and really written a book about it is that you need both of those. And as I hear you talk, you speak with conviction. And I know Sunil talks about conviction as far as what makes people backable. And so I do think you need to mix curiosity with conviction. And if we're curious at first, then we're open and we're learning and we're growing, then we've earned the right to say, hey, I've done the work. You know, if I've, if I've done the work, I've earned the right to play, right? Like if I um, was curious how to play the guitar, but then just had the belief that I could do it and just went on stage with you, it probably wouldn't go very well. I have to learn and grow and develop before I can actually go and, and do the damn thing. So um, yeah, I think you're talking more about, so, so again, I, when I hear the word arrogance and we could just de different definition, but like, to me, that means I'm better than you. I'm inherently more talented. You know, I look down on you. And so it's, it's a subjective kind of term where you're subjugating somebody else. Like, you, you know, you're putting yourself higher. Uh, things you're talking about are confidence, competence, conviction. You know, th those things are, I think, really important. And you're exactly right. I mean, if I'm all wimpy about it and don't have any conviction or confidence in my ideas or abilities, no question, that's not going to work out. But I, I would shy away from people who are like boastful and, and condescending and patronizing because, man, like, the, first of all, the world's too short. Like, like, life's too short. We don't, we don't need that. But also what happens is, you know, no one wants to work for that person. I mean, if, if you're confident and have great skills and stuff, but you're humble and open-minded and, and you can, people can tell you're there to, to help serve others. They are, they will walk through fire for you. But if you're just bossing people around being like me, 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 like who, who wants to work with that? Yeah. And arrogance definitely rubs people the wrong way when I say it, because if you've ever worked for an arrogant jerk, it's not fun. And so I get it. And I have a lot of conviction in this that Beyonce, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Bob Marley, uh, Kanye West, I mean, pick your savant when they are in the arena and when the lights are on, they have a belief in themselves that's far bigger than anyone else. And I think if you rely on confidence, then it can wean based on the outcome and, and you, you can lose it based on the outcome. And so my point is that I think we're actually performing far less than we're preparing. And um, I think it's just that you believe you're important, that you matter, that you value. I mean, Bruce Springsteen is one of the, more interesting musicians and you're probably more into music than me, but like he feels alive when he's on stage, he has demons and, and mental health challenges that he's been pretty open about, but he has a belief in himself when he gets on stage that he's going to rock out that night, regardless of how he's feeling or what the crowd's like, yada, yada, yada. So um, musicians are actually some of the people I love to study the most because I think in order for them to get on stage and do what they do on a nightly basis, they have to earn it through humility and they have to get feedback and make sure that the masterpiece is where they want, but they have to let go of the humility once they're on stage, because if they get on stage and they're still humble, then they lose the ability to connect. And uh, I'm not suggesting that it needs to be about the other. I think arrogance, like Stephen Curry has arrogance when he gets on the floor because he has this unshakable belief in himself. But if he's 0 for 5, he still believes the next one's going to go in despite what our society says. So I think your grandma actually instilled a little arrogance in you. Um, and for you, it's about using it when it's appropriate. And, and so my book is really about when and that it depends when we need to be one way. It depends when we need to be another. And I'll send you a copy and you can you can argue with me. And, and I love it. I think it's, it's really a healthy conversation because 
often we deem things like selfishness or perfectionism or arrogance as bad without any context of when to use those things. We talked about fear earlier. Like it's important that my five-year-old does have some fear before he crosses the street. Like that's actually a needed emotion to feel in order for him not to get run over. So um, those are the things that I love. I love riffing on and uh, polarity to me is, is just so interesting. Yeah, man. I really appreciate that perspective. And I, I feel like you've opened my mind quite a bit. I, I definitely have learned from that. I guess my only uh, request would be if there's somehow we can marry arrogance, because you're right. I, 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 you, I'm, I believe what you're saying with, with a little bit of make sure that's like compassionate arrogance. I don't know if that's even the right way to approach it, because the only thing is like, if you're, if you're super confident, like I'm the rock star, I'm going to bring this arena down. Yeah, for sure. Bruce Springsteen needs that. But if he's doing it at the expense of others, he's like, because I'm Bruce Springsteen, I'm going to treat my drummer terribly. That's where I, I draw the line. And so as long as it's, there's like that crazy arrogance and it's your, you bought it, but like for, for positive things, but there's still compassion for those around you. Yeah. I call it inner arrogance. So I don't even think it needs to be outer. It's the dialogue you're having with yourself and the belief yeah. in yourself. And I think you can be the most selfless, arrogant person in the world. There you um, go. That's like, cool. I, like I can have a belief that I can help you and I can be selfless and you may not see it, but I see it. And that might be like, there's so many times where our society says you can't do it. Um, your, your dad, your, your, your dad is a really good example. And there are a lot of people you needed some arrogance to say, no, I can do it. Um, because you said I'm, I'm 20 years old. Like I had no reason to believe it, but I did. And sometimes we need to step into that. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. And I'm very careful with that word. And I, I also say it's a cocktail humility and arrogance. It, if you don't have the humility, you're really, really in trouble. So um, yeah. yeah, it's awesome. Uh, a couple more things I want to hit on with you before we, we close is writing. Um, so you are further in the writing journey than I am. So this is very much a selfish question on my part. What have you learned about writing? What's your process look like? What have you found out about it that maybe you didn't know before you started it? And take me back, you know, 10, 15 years uh, before you started writing and what you thought then and, and how you think about writing today and what your process looks like? I think, first of all, it's part of it's just doing the reps. Like the more you write, the better writer you become. There's no question about it. Uh, and my, the, what I write today is better than it was 10 years ago. And hopefully five years from now, it'll be better than I, what I wrote today. So there, there is some just real practice in it. Um, the thing, couple things that I did differently in this book than in the past. Um, one is I spent way more time on polish and revisions. So, um, before, there's a great line, which I've always loved with writing, which is um, what do great, well, all great authors have in common? Lousy first drafts. And, and so the notion is, you know, first of all, what I do now is really separate those processes. I just sort of dump ideas onto the page and don't worry about the grammatical structure and the word choice and all that kind of stuff. I just get the raw goods out on the table. And then separately, because it's almost a different part of your brain, then I do a pass maybe for grammar. Then I do another pass. Can I add some comedy? Then I do another pass. Can I add some richness and detail and color? And so I, I do multiple revisionary patch, uh, paths across it with a different lens each time, as opposed to like, as I write, every word should be perfect and ready for print. So that, that's been a real, real win. The other thing that I've learned anyway, and again, this might just be me, but there's sometimes I'm in the groove and sometimes I'm just not. And rather than trying to understand it, I just sort of you know, defer to it. So what I'll do is if I really don't feel like writing, I say, I'm going to, I have like a little 15 minute rule. Say, I'm going to give it 15 minutes and honest 15 minutes, because sometimes after that 15 minutes, I'm up or up, I'm in the groove now. And I busted through the, whatever was holding me back and I'm flowing. But if I'm not flowing at the end of 15 minutes, I put the pencil down and take a break. 
Same thing with time of day. I, I've noticed sometimes I write better at some mornings, evenings, and I just try to honor that the best I can. The one other trick I'll just say real quickly, I, it's not my trick, was called the Hemingway Bridge, but I find it super helpful. So Hemingway would find that he'd finish a chapter and he was like this big sense of accomplishment and he finished his thought. Then he'd go out and get drunk or whatever Hemingway did. But the next morning he'd come back and it was hard to get started again. So we created this idea called the Hemingway Bridge and that he would start when he had that triumphant moment of finishing a chapter, he'd then begin the first two or three sentences of the next chapter and leave it there. So that when he came back, it wasn't staring at a blank page. He had a little bit of a head start. And I actually did that with this book and I, it, it was really helpful. Last thing I'll just say is that the more work you do before you write, the better the writing will be and the easier the writing will be. So for me, I spent months, I mean months, interviews, research, organization. I had just stuff everywhere and all my facts straight. And like I had a hypothesis that I was trying to support and outlines and, you know, all that. So, so by the time I actually got to the actual putting words together, I had the, 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 the underpinnings of it, the, the scaffolding was there. And so if you try to do all that at the same time, while trying to sound clever, while using good word choice, while being fun and funny and being substantive and all that, it's really hard to do it all at once. So for me, I just tried to segment each of those processes individually. And you also do a fair amount of speaking. What do you do to set your mind before you go on stage? What do you do to make sure that you are where you need to be when you need to be there? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Well, for speaking, you know, I, I always try to be very present, but I did learn something new this time, which I do both for speaking and, and the book. If you speak to an audience and you, you know, people say, oh, if you're nervous, imagine the audience is in their underwear. I'm sorry, I don't want to see most people in their underwear. Just no thanks. But instead, what I do is this. I think about someone, uh, Brian, in your life that, that you, that maybe it's a client of yours that just really looks up to you. And, uh, you know, that, that they, they kind of really listen to every word. You're, you're a bit of their mentor or guru and they just love, they, they can't wait to hear from you and what you have to say. And think how good you feel when you're with that person, when you're shining. So what I do when I'm speaking, and I actually tried to do this a bit in the book, is write or speak to a person instead of to like the masses. So there's there's one person in my life, a, a colleague of mine who I've worked with for many years named Jordan. So sometimes I'm writing, I'm like, hey, I'm writing this for Jordan. You know, or I'm speaking in the audience, you know, fourth row back, it's that's Jordan in the audience. And it, it not only provides you more comfort, but then you kind of get into the zone that you want, you need to be in to perform at your best. I think mentorship, you mentioned, you mentioned, you know, think about a mentor. What do you think makes a good mentor? What do you think leads to, to good mentorship? You're 50 years old now. So I'm sure there are people that are knocking on your door and saying, Hey, Josh, can you teach me how to write? Can you teach me how to speak? Can you teach me how to build a business? What do you find makes a quality mentor? Well, to a degree, a mentor and a teacher are, you know, not exactly the same term, but there's some, some similarities there. Uh, one is that the, a mentor, it's not look what I did. It's look what you can do. So I think the primary thing is that if the mentor is there to serve and elevate their mentee, as opposed to thinking like, hey, there's a chance for me to tell my war stories and feel all good about myself, that, you know, let's make it about the person you're mentoring rather than you as the mentor. The second thing is it's important to be a good listener, because if you are just spouting out what worked for you, maybe that worked great for you, but maybe it won't. It's the, the person in front of you is in a different circumstance. They're not the same person. The timing is different. Maybe they're in a different industry or business, whatever. So rather than thinking that exactly what you did is the cure-all, it's, it's the silver bullet, I think you have to really listen to them. And maybe you extract experiences or patterns that you, you had in, in, your own, in your own path and, and share that with the other person to help them discover what's right for, for them. But it's not about being prescriptive as much as it is, I think, about you know, being a good listener, being a good di diagnostics, and, and, then, and then applying your, your body of wisdom and experience to help that other person thrive. Before we started recording, I asked you, hey, what are some things that you, you like talking about? What do you want me to lean into? And one of the things you said was Detroit. 
And so I'd love to hear your perspective. I think Detroit's going through a pretty big transformation um, right now, especially downtown where you grew up in the city. I think um, it's been neglected for, for a lot of years. And from the people that I know that are there, there's a real effort to revitalize it. And there's some really cool stuff. So give a commercial for your city. Um, why should people come to Detroit, assuming that they're able to travel and we're not in a pandemic? Um, talk about Detroit and, and why it is important to you and why you're passionate about it. Well, think about this. A hundred years ago, Detroit was the Silicon Valley of our country. And this is where people came to build their ideas. And, and, and when we did that, when we were in that entrepreneurial creative groove, our city flourished. We built gorgeous buildings and roads and universities. We were known as the Paris of the Midwest. Then what happened? Then we did a 180. Instead of creating cool cars, we started administering automotive corporations. And these are self-inflicted wounds to be sure. But when we got away from our entrepreneurial creative roots, our city suffered. And the, and the problems that you see, I believe, were a byproduct of that, whether it's racial divisiveness or dwindling tax base or shrinking population. But as you point out, our city, once broken, is now in the midst of this incredible revitalization. And I believe it will be studied for years to come as one of the greatest turnaround stories in American history. And it's partly, I believe, because we're reconnecting to those roots. Instead of trying to become the Detroit of the past, we're like, okay, how, how can we become new? How can we make sure that our best days are yet to come? And, and I think that we have a very exciting time. I mean, by the way, this is a city with a soul. Like, this is, this is where we built stuff with our hands. This is where Motown music came from. Like, this is an incredibly rich history with 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 resilient, gritty, scrappy people. And, and I think there's so much to be seen here and learn from. I think it's a living laboratory of, of what the creative process can do to help rebuild challenges. And let's face it, the, the COVID crisis has hit, has, it's almost like the entire world has hit a giant reset button. And, and the patterns have been broken, the way we, way we eat, shop, work, sell, love, you know, et cetera. And so when with patterns broken, we have to discover new ones. You know, we, we can't rely on the models of the past and expect the same results. Detroit, I think, is a really good example of, of, a, of a community that's done just that. Today, we still have a long way to go, but downtown Detroit, it's vibrant, it's fresh, there's art galleries, there's new restaurants, it's, there's, it's alive, man. And this is, this is a really cool way, I think, that we can not only experience that, but learn from it as well. It's interesting getting to know you over the last hour, because that word soul has come out a couple times. And it seems as if at your core, you are that kid going into those jazz clubs and just finding your way and knocking on the door and beating the door down and just wanting to jam. And you speak fast, I speak fast, um, but you riff and you're convicted and you have beliefs. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge those things and, and really appreciate your passion and your pride. Um, and I think they're important pieces to the human experience. My last question is, what do you do to intentionally set your mind either daily or weekly? Or how do you make sure as you're riffing and running and, and doing this and doing that and you got four kids, how do you make sure that you're also setting your mind to be the best version of you? Thanks for that observation, by the way. It's very kind of you to say. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually pretty deliberate about that. Um, people often say that I get a lot done, but I actually spend way more time than most, I think, in reflection. Um, in, in other words, not working on a specific work output, but, but rather thinking about what do I want to do next week? What am I going to focus on? As you point out, how, how am I going to be intentional and be the best version of myself? So I do that at least a couple of times a week. And sometimes it's with a glass of wine or whatever. Sometimes it's just hanging out. But, but I really take time to, it's funny, we spend most of our time, I've often thought, being heads down. And when you're heads down, you're cranking out your work, but you're, you're also, by the way, not heads up. And I look at this as heads up time where I can think and reflect and plan and, 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 and be deliberate and intentional. 
Uh, I do also have a, a five minute a day creativity ritual, which I cover in the book. I generally do it in the mornings where it involves a little bit of gratitude. It involves a little bit of a couple deep breaths and kind of getting grounded. I spend one minute, literally one minute guzzling the creative input of others. They always say, if you want to change the outputs, you got to change the inputs. And so I might listen to a, some music or I might stare at a painting or read a poem out loud just to get my juices flowing. Then I also give myself some weird creative challenge like if I had to find 13 alternative uses for a ballpoint pen, what might they be? And it's not designed, again, to yield a particular outcome. It's more to just get some practice, like jumping jacks for your creativity. And anyway, I only spend five minutes a day doing it, and it sets me in the right direction. And I, I've said to people, if you do that for five minutes a day for 30 days, you'll be blown away. Because creativity is my passion, as you know. It's who we are. And so if we can reconnect with who we are, the, the, the results come pretty quickly. That's awesome. Uh, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and I look forward to coming to Detroit uh, it's actually a place where I haven't been since I was, gosh, the Washington Capitals played the Detroit Red Wings in the Stanley Cup years ago. It did not bode well for the Washington Capitals. It was a sweep, um, but we went to Detroit and sat in the nosebleeds. And if you're in Detroit and you're wearing a Washington Capitals jersey, people are going to look at you like you're pretty damn strange because there's not that many of them. Uh, I think the fortunes have flipped a little bit over the past few years, but um, I haven't been there since then. And that was a long time ago when I was a kid. Um, and I have some friends in Detroit that I know have been asking me to visit. So as this pandemic hopefully evolves and changes and opens up, uh, I will make sure to knock on your door and, and maybe we'll grab a glass of wine and, and talk shop. Um, but I want to give you a megaphone to plug and to promote and to share anything that you're passionate about. Certainly, where can people learn about you and your writings and your books and all the things that you're working on? And then anything else that you think deserves a megaphone, you've got airtime to just share. So what else do you think people should know and, and how can people find you? Well, thanks so much. And I, uh, first of all, First megaphone would be a shout out to you. What a great discussion and a pleasure meeting you. I can't wait to be your ambassador here in Detroit when you come by. And so I'm counting on that for sure. Um, I would just say this, that, that I, through my research and experience, all of us, and I mean all of us, can bring our creativity forward in a deliberate, productive way. And it will really drive the outcomes that we care about the most, whether they're business or family or, or whatever else. And if I can be helpful in any way, it, it'd be my pleasure. So I would suggest that people check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. Look, if you want to buy the book, awesome. But even if you don't, there's a free assessment tool. There's a quick start guide. There's all kinds of downloadable worksheets, all kinds. It's a big toolkit to help you get your creativity on. So check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. And uh, again, if I can be of service in any way, I'm on social media and I'm pretty chill, low key guy. So uh, email me anytime. I'm just josh at joshlinkner.com. Pretty easy to find. But uh, I just want to also celebrate the listeners today who have invested an hour of their lives to, to hear this fun conversation. And I just wish everybody nothing but the best and make sure people stay creative. Creative. I love it. I often say that time is our greatest commodity and, and certainly appreciate those tuning in. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and in LinkedIn, on LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Josh, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate you. And hopefully one day you can teach me how to play guitar because it's been, it's been on the list and I've tried and I've failed. I've failed because I haven't really given it a full go. So it is, it is a failure on my part. Um, but appreciate you and all your energy and uh, looking forward to connecting with you again real soon. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. When I play jazz, I, I'm, I'm using an instrument and, and using my imagination and creating stuff in real time. When I do business, I do the same thing. So I don't look at business as 
Although I, I can navigate my way around a spreadsheet if I have to, but I don't think about it as just, you know, activity to only create money. I, I think about it as I, I enjoy the creative process and it's interactive and it's collaborative and you're riffing and you're seeing, you're, I, I, by the way, I'm kind of in the business of aha moments too, which is a fun business. I'm not like selling hamburgers that poison children or something. So I feel like the business that I'm in is good for the world. I, I love helping other people succeed. I love the interaction. I love, you know, sharing ideas. I love teaching and learning and growing and, you know, economic value is, is also a good thing. You know, not because not I want to drape myself with gold, but economics create more opportunities for others. You can use them for philanthropy. So I'm kind of in, engaged in the business world, not because I have to, but because I love it.